This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hey everyone, just an intro about today's podcast. So as often happens in life, you start one project and then in the middle of that project, you start another project. So that's what's going on right now. I'm still doing the 12 principles and that's going to continue. I know I haven't dropped a couple of episodes on that for a little while. I've been doing a training and had a conference and just, you know, life got busy as April tends to do in my life. So the other project that I got started on, I actually wanted to get started on it like in January when I was reading the latest book by Emily and her sister, her twin sister, Amelia Nagoski called Burnout. And I texted the women that I work with at Healing Pass in my office and said, hey, I would love to get together and kind of do a panel episode for a podcast about this book because I'm finding it really relevant for me and my life, but also for the women that I work with and even for the men that I work with who know women. And so I thought it would be good for us to assemble and do a podcast together. And, you know, we have a lot to say and there's a lot to say about this book. And I will say we're only covering a high level overview of the book. There's still so many things for you to gain from reading the book. But we are dividing this episode series on burnout into three different series. The book is divided into part one, part two, and part three. So that's what we are doing as well. And this episode that you're going to listen to is what we discussed for part one of the book. I hope you enjoy and I hope you tune into the second part of the book and the third part of the book, which we will be recording as our schedules line up again. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's podcast, I have assembled a panel of some of my colleagues. I mentioned this probably back in December or January when I was reading this book, and I sent out an email asking if they'd be willing to do a panel discussion for the podcast and all of them agreed. And then it's just taken a really long time for me to get on top of it and get a scheduled and get all of our weekends working together so that we could do this. So I'm really excited. You'll hear from the guests on the show, Rachel Allen, Christina Elwanger, and Amy Smith. So we are going to be talking about, this is kind of a book club for us that we're going to, you get to listen into the book burnout, the secret to unlocking the stress cycle by Emily and Amelia Nagoski. So I'm gonna read just a little bit of the introduction and then all of the people on the panel will talk about kind of their overall impression of the book. Then we're gonna talk about some key concepts and then break it into parts because we do have a lot to say about this book. This book resonated with us as women and with the clients we work with. So Emily and Amelia write, this is a book for any woman who has felt overwhelmed and exhausted by everything she had to do and yet still worried she was not doing enough, which is every woman we know, including us. You've heard the usual advice over and over, exercise, green smoothies, self-compassion, coloring books, mindfulness, bubble baths, gratitude. You've probably tried a lot of it, so have we. And sometimes it helps, at least for a while, but then the kids are struggling in school or our partner needs support through a difficulty or a new work project lands in our laps and we think, 
I'll do the self-care thing as soon as I finish this. The problem is not that women don't try. On the contrary, we're trying all the time to do and be all the things everyone demands from us. And we will try anything, any green smoothie, any deep breathing exercise, any coloring book or bath bomb, any retreat or vacation we can shoehorn into our schedules to be what our work and our family and our world demand. We try to put on our own oxygen mask before assisting others. And then along comes another struggling kid or terrible boss or difficult semester. The problem is not that we aren't trying. The problem isn't even that we don't know how. The problem is the world has turned wellness into yet another goal everyone should strive for, but only people with time and money and nannies and yachts and Oprah's phone number can actually achieve. So this book is different from anything else you'll read about burnout. We'll figure out what wellness can look like in your actual life and we'll confront the barriers that stand between you and your own well-being. We'll put those barriers in context like landmarks on a map so we can find paths around and over and through or sometimes just blow them to smithereens with science. Okay, who wants to talk first about overall impression of the book? I wanna say too, before we go there, they did not write this book intending for only women to read this book. They also want men to read this book because most men know women and have some type of relationship with women. So it's important that men also understand some of the challenges or some of the difficulties women are facing. I can go first. I loved this book. I think that it took a lot of things that I already had kind of in my head and put it together. I'm Rachel, by the way, for the listeners, because for me, this book was really a lot of different ideas that I had connected, but to see that somebody else had connected them and made it really tangible and really useful was super helpful. I also like the fact that they basically go through this book and say like, look, you can do what you can do. And it's not always you mm-hmm. was really helpful. Also they're nerds and I love nerd culture. So that made me very happy through the whole thing. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Who's next? Christina, do you want to go? And I do have to say, I have in my copy, I have it starred like on one page, they reference Yoda and the Karate Kid on one page. And that <laughs> yes. Made really, that made me really happy too. But yeah, I love this book. And it's definitely one that I have repeatedly recommended to clients since reading it. A big takeaway for me was just the, the way it named experiences. Because, you know, I think a lot of, of people... A lot of women, especially, they may not realize that they're experiencing disappointment or discouragement or anger or compassion fatigue. And this book really gives a lot of good um, information and permission to just be authentic to our experience and what we're feeling. And I also loved that, you know, they they do talk about uh, women's issues and they talk about patriarchy. And as a cultural issue, not as like a men versus women issue, but as like this larger cultural issue that that hurts the culture as a whole. And so I love the way that they that they really discuss that honestly and openly. Yeah, me too. Amy, what was your impression? This is very similar to what's already been said. Uh I love all the science and there are pages and pages of like research notes in the back, um, which I also love. 
I ha also have made very many recommendations of this book to a lot of my clients and a lot of just other women in my life. Some of the biggest things I enjoyed about the book is that the recognition that this isn't a one size fits all, you know, method. Uh, I think so many times most wellness aspects of, of the world are presented as a, this will work for everybody. You just need to do this. And so many times in the book, they just reference like, you'll have to try and figure this out. This is a messy process. You've got to figure out what works for you, you know, and they talk between the two of them um, as twins of what works for each one of them. And they use their different friends as examples, which I just think is so encouraging because it is a messy process. Like figuring out life is messy. And sometimes we approach, I think mental health, the people can approach mental health that way as a one size fits all. You just have to do this and this and this, and then you'll be fine. And and so I love very much that there was just so many options in the book of try this and try this and try this. Yeah. But same thing, like nerdiness. I love the talk about patriarchy. I love the talk about systems, how we're just not a single person existing in a world, but that we're part of a system. And I think everybody sometimes we don't recognize how deep that system is or how wide reaching that system is or how that system is influencing us. That's another like myth. I think we have sometimes in mental health is I should just be able to do it myself and without looking at the, the system. So I loved all those aspects of it. Yeah, me too. So one of the things I think we need to introduce two key concepts that they introduce at the start of the book and then kind of uh, rely or go back to and pull from throughout the book. So the first one is the human giver syndrome. And I'll read what they wrote to define that. They said in the book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, philosopher Kate Mann describes a system in which one class of people, the human givers, are expected to offer their time, attention, affection, and bodies willingly, placidly to the other class of people, the human beings. The implication in these terms is that human beings have a moral obligation to be or express their humanity, while human givers have a moral obligation to give their humanity to the human beings. And then she says, yeah, guess which one women are. Yeah. I mean, that's all of chapter two, right? Is also about the human giver syndrome and kind of what that means. Yeah. I think that for us, right. As clinicians, we see a lot of this in our females and it, it really doesn't matter for me what kind of female is in my office. Like what is the presenting problem? There usually is always this, like, I'm not good enough. I can't do enough. Like no one's happy with me. I have to keep doing whatever. And even self-care becomes part of that, right? Like I'm doing self-care. So my body looks a certain way. I'm like, doing healthy meals so that I look a certain way so that so-and-so is happy with me or whatever that is. And this like minor concept is so huge for this book. I don't know that it's a minor concept, but like they just give us like one little snippet of kind of what it is and then grow it. But it's, it's a impressive part of this book, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I find, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience and from clients too, that, you know, when they talk about all the effort, you know, I, I find it doesn't have to just be women, but I find predominantly, you know, women feel like they're the ones like holding a relationship together, or holding a family together. 
and they're burnt out, they're exhausted. And, you know, presenting this idea of, you know, well, you could stop that or you could do something different feels very scary to them, feels very threatening because, you know, because the system doesn't support that, doesn't support them just being, just being. <laughs> and, uh, and I find that also there's this underlying tendency that, you know, they feel like, or you feel like you have to justify your existence, right? Mm -hmm. So it is that human doing, right? Like you have to be doing something, you have to be proving something just to just to be allowed to take up space or, you know, justify the air you breathe. Well, and I think that's one of the things they don't necessarily say this in the book, but I think it's kind of intuited in the book where in a, in a patriarchal structure, right, where the emphasis is on males and what males can provide to the system or to the society, if females aren't, you know, if what we provide is less than, or it's not necessarily useful, then if we can't be, right, if what we contribute isn't in and of itself inherently good, then we need to be needed. And so we give and we give and we give, you know, in order to kind of justify our gender. I think it's a, a lot, like you're saying, it's a way to find value for myself, right? Mm -hmm. If I keep giving and giving and giving, then that's where I find my value as a person is mm -hmm. in what I offer, what I can give. And so to stop giving and just being, just sitting and being as a person feels very scary, like Christina was saying, because where does my value come from, right? I think that's a lot of the clients I deal with is, I work with is just that idea of if I stop giving, then what, what value do I provide? Who, who am I? And, and that's, a, that's a very real challenge for a lot of the women that we work with. The second concept they talk about is the stress cycle and the importance of completing the stress cycle. So I don't know, I mean, how they go through it is pretty long. Should I read it? I mean, that is all of chapter one. So we can just kind of discuss Okay. That. And I wrote the note, if this is all you get out of this book, it's worth the read. Right. <laughs> it's like if all you get out of this book is learning that, I mean, I, I like how they, they kind of frame it, that there's a difference between the stress response that we feel and the stressor in our life. Right. right. And chapter one is about that differentiation. And then how do I get rid of the stress? Even if I can't control the stressor, even if I can't control anything that's happening or stop the cause of the stress, I can get rid of the stress response in my life. And if that's all you get out of this book, reading it for just that is worth it. And <laughs> that's in chapter one. So you don't even have that's to go very far to get that, right? That's right. <laughs> so again, just to clarify, stressors are things that like happen usually external to us that have an internal response, right? That internal response is usually the stress right? That's like, that's inside of us. So that's what Amy, you were saying, like, even if I can't control these stressors, right? A project at work plus a sick child, plus something else is going on in my life, right? I may not be able to control those things, but it, it's really important that I'm looking at the stress that it's taking on my system and do something about the stress. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they do define stress, like there's external and internal stressors. So like we can have internal stressors like self-criticism, body image, identity, and memories that can create the stress mm -hmm. that are stressors, but the stress that we hold in our body is separate from that. And yeah, I think 
like I love the science around the stress response too, because we see it a lot in trauma research, right? Like this is the running away from the lion, getting away from the lion. What do you do when you're away from the lion? Mm-hmm. Right. And they actually use that example in the book about running back to the village. And mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that our body just stops feeling all of that adrenaline. Like it doesn't just go away once the lion is gone. Right. And so Rachel, just kind of finishing that, like how would, you know, so they get away from the lion. What do they do to finish that cycle? Well, they, I mean, they talk about like, you know, if you're in a tribe, you run away from a lion, you get back to the village, then the tribe usually like rallies behind you and goes and kills the lion and brings it back. And there's a party and we dance and we sing and we run around and we eat a lot of food and we laugh and we tell the story about the crazy lion and how we defeated it. Right. So all of those are ways to relieve stress, the moving of the body, the telling the story, the laughing with friends, the, you know, showing up and having affection with people, eating good food and like sitting down and taking time to like eat and do that slowly in a celebratory manner are ways that we can relieve the stress because it's a signal to our body that we're safe. Right. They say in the book that like, you have to do something to let your body know that you're safe. Right. And simply like telling yourself you're safe so you can calm down doesn't actually help. Right. And even in this example, seeing the dead lion, doesn't actually give my body that internal cue that says that I'm safe. Right. And so what do they say? They say, you have to do something that signals to your body that you're safe or else you'll stay in that state with neurochemicals and hormones degrading, but never shifting into relaxation, your digestive system, immune system, cardiovascular system, muscular skeletal system, and reproductive system never get the signal that they're safe. And then they talk about, right, bringing it into the modern day, like we don't necessarily encounter lions, but we may have that person at work that feels like a lion to our system. Right. I also loved that they call out like cat calling and like sexual predator behavior in public, that it can be unsafe to go after that because they're talking about the fight, flight, or freeze in those spaces. And that a lot, a lot of women will get like, they, you're not going to say something to someone who's cat calling you because it can be more dangerous. So we'll move out of that, but you still have the stress of that. And we will try to like supersede, like, it's okay. I'm out of it. But unless we kind of get through that and discharge that stressor, we're still feeling that stress of the threat that was, you know, put on us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love the way that they address it in the book. And I think it is so valuable because, you know, from our professional perspective and, you know, trauma informed kind of psychology, you know, knowing that these are physiological, neurobiological things and it's much greater and deeper than kind of the pop psychology or general social um response of like positive thinking, you know, or like imposed forced kind of toxic positivity, you know, that there, there really needs to be a deeper relationship that we're building with our stress response in our bodies and, you know, in, in our biology and, you know, and our social systems to really address the, 
the issue at the root. Right. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that comment because I do think we sometimes live in a culture of just like, you should be able to get over this. Why aren't you over this? Right. Like, or it was in the past, just move on or, you know, it's done and that type of thing. And, and that, that is that pulp culture, you know, response to our toxic positivity. And, and so I love in the book again, just that they are like, okay, you have a stress response and you have to get to know that stress response and you have to understand how that shows up in your body. And then they give you so many ideas on ways to complete that stress response so that the actual, you're not holding on to the stress, the stressor might continue. And maybe you can't control that at the moment, but you can at least let go of some of that stress so that your body is not holding on to that and continuing to let it build up um, as the stressors continue to build up in your life. Yeah. I also think it's important, right? Thinking of like so many clients that all of us work with who have experienced betrayal trauma, you know, it's not this black or white where like Rachel, you brought up like returning to your village and your tribe and celebrating and yay, that's a signal that I'm safe. And for many people, right? Some of the people in their attachment system, this brings in Michelle Mays's work. Some of the people in their attachment system are also in their threat system. Yes. And that's why it's so important, right? That you also are doing this individually for yourself because you can't just rely on those around you to help you finish the cycle. Right. I can't remember. So I read this book and then, I mean, it's been a minute. So like I've read several other books after this, and I also can't remember if I just made this up based on me connecting the books. So that's a thing too, but I was talking to a client about like this stress cycle. And when we're experiencing trauma in our families or in our, you know, attachment systems or our marriages, whatever that is, we're literally sleeping with the lion. Mm -hmm. And so it is hard for us to continuously, you know, realize that without there being this black and white, I mean, without us knowing what our own stress cycle is and knowing how to relieve that stress, because if you bring a live lion into the tribe, then you have a problem. Or if the rest of the tribe doesn't see the lion as a problem, it's a problem. And so, yeah, I think that that's huge. And, and I love, they also talk about that. Like we don't process those stressors in two different ways. Like emotional stressors and physical stressors aren't processed in two different places in the body. So if we have psychosocial stressors, they are being processed the same as an actual physical lion in front of us. But we don't always see that because it's a lot more nuanced and a lot more gray. So at the end of the chapter, they kind of tell you, uh, they give us four signs, right? That we need to deal with stress in our life. I really liked these. I think they're worth mentioning. Just these are the four signs of that you need to deal with stress, right? Even if it means ignoring the stressor, they say, but you know, number one is you notice yourself doing the same apparently pointless thing over and over again, or engaging in self-destructive behaviors. Two is chandeliering, which is a, a Brene Brown term, but just means that we have kind of a really big over response to something going on, right? Uh, we hit the chandelier because our response is so big. Number three is you turn into a bunny hiding under a hedge. So this is, you don't have a response. You just freeze mm-hmm. and hide. And then number four, your body feels out of whack. 
And I don't know a single woman, I think in my life, who's bought, who isn't struggling with trying to feel better in their body. Right. Right. Body feels out of whack. Well, Um, so much, so much of our life and existence is trying to stop listening to our body and yeah, you get out of whack that way because we're not listening to the stressors. Right. And so, so many women, right. Are walking around with these unfinished stress cycles piled on top of each other. Yeah. And still trying to hold it together. Right. And still, especially during COVID trying to do online schooling with kids and trying to like bring the family together and meet the demands of work. Right. All of that stuff that's still going on. Yeah. And your body will not, your body cannot endlessly give. Mm-hmm. It can't, you know, we are in a body that there's no arguing that it has needs and that it has wants. And yeah. So to keep up kind of my identity or my value is based around what I can give or who I can support, you know, you need to be detached from or dissociated from the body in some way, because the body will say, no, I can't, you know, I can't keep this up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, like yeah. Amy talked about, like, even if we're detached so that we're not in tune with our body so that we just keep going, 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 the body will just keep increasing the signals that it's not working, mm-hmm. right? Chronic illness, different things like that, that are coming out, right? Some of the autoimmune diseases we know are kind of that, you know, connection to stress with the autoimmune stress and trauma. Well, and I think that these all really play with each other in like, in a very toxic way, right? Like that you notice yourself doing the same apparently pointless thing ever and over again and engaging in self-destructive behavior. Like we do that to numb the stress because we don't know what to do with the stress, but that also pushes our bodies out of whack. We end up in this cycle where we're trying to get rid of the stress by not actually addressing the stress. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I, I love that. That's how they kind of end the chapter is wellness is not a state of being, but a state of action, right? Which is kind of what you're saying. Like we have to take action on these things. We can't just let that stress continue to build up layer by layer by layer. Like we have to take the action, even if we can't control the situation. That's what I loved about this chapter was just, that's why I said like, if this is all you get out of this book, then okay. Like even if you can't control anything else going on in your life, you can control how you deal with your own stress. Like, you know, no matter what going is going on, no matter the system you're a part of, and no matter if you know what's happening, you can choose to complete that stress response and not hold on to that stress. Mm -hmm. And, And I love that. Well, and for all of us, like we work with addicts and trauma and we use a lot of like 12 step materials. Like this is the, like focusing on yourself. The only thing that you can control is you. This is and the serenity prayer. It is. That's <laughs> by all the science in the world. <laughs> backed right? by all, yes. Backed <laughs> by science. This is the serenity prayer backed by science. <laughs> and I mean, like, oh, go ahead, Christina. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, reading these four things too, it's interesting because they're observations about, you know, your, your individual experience. But I do also feel like there's social influence here where we see like this glorification of being busy all the time or overachieving or certain things just being completely socially normalized, like blowing up about little things or body being out of whack. You know, I know that 
a lot of people are just like, well, that's just the way it is. Everybody feels that way. There's nothing I can do about it. You know, there's no other way to be. And um, so I like that they put that in there and then question it and then offer options, offer an alternative way of being. Mm-hmm. I also like the point that they make about like the stress is not bad for you. Like stress is actually good for your body. It's good for you to go through these cycles, but getting stuck in the stress is bad for you. Right. And that you have to complete the cycle or you're just like basically hormone dumping because it's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so we don't balance internally. And I loved that idea because I also think that so much of like negative positivity culture or the toxic positivity culture is like, well, just don't be stressed and don't, you know, don't be around people that make you feel stressed, avoid stressful things. And it's like, I would have to live in a hole in order to do that because that's not part of life. There is a certain level of stress that is good for us. And we've got to learn how to deal with that stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And even if you lived in the hole, you'd be stressed because you'd be looking at everybody else outside and be like, what are they doing? Right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> One of the examples they give, well, one of the things that they say is that physical activity is the single most efficient way to get rid of stress, right? Yeah. Single most efficient way of completing the stress response cycle is physical activity. And I remember when COVID started uh, and we were like on the serious lockdown period of time, I started this, I would pick a band of the day. I was like, so bored. I would pick a band of the day um, from my past or like just, you know, some music band. And I would just make Alexa play that music all day long. And some of it, I would like dance. I would get, make myself like get up and dance like for three to five minutes in between like calls I was doing or classes I was teaching at that time or whatever was going on. And that lasted for probably a good like three months. And then I was like, I kind of forgot about it and got busy and I could tell like a massive difference. I'm like, oh, right. Cause I'm not doing that on a regular basis every day, every few hours, I'm not engaging in that physical activity. Right. And I, I know that we talk about that all the time with clients of just like the actual moving emotion comes with energy. And if we don't move that energy through our body, it gets stuck. And we just get stuck and we just create that anxiety and we just get so stuck. And that's also about moving. That isn't one more thing to do as a human giver, which is to be attractive, right? For the beings. And so it's not about, you know, burning calories or achieving a certain weight, right? It's about moving as a way to finish this stress cycle and to allow my system to re-regulate itself. Mm -hmm. I also appreciated their whole thing about health is an internal process, not what people see on the outside. Like, I just appreciate that they basically shot down all mean girl culture and all toxic health diet culture. And like, they literally just like slammed it Mm -hmm. because this is about an internal health thing and not like you're doing it because your body needs it, not because of the way that you look or the way that society thinks that you should be. And I just loved that. Yeah. There's an exercise that I do, a grounding exercise that I do with my clients a lot. 
where if they're comfortable closing their eyes, they can close their eyes or I give them options for that if that doesn't feel comfortable. But I let them know that my eyes are closed. Like I am not looking at them. I am not seeing what they're doing. And then I just open up space for them to move their body in whatever way feels good to them in that moment. And I say, you know, we're just giving the body some time, some space attention and permission to move in whatever way feels good and and I get you know it, it feels good if I mean I do it myself all the time too <laughs> because it's different right we don't often in our day-to-day -day life give our body attention or just time and space and permission to just be like yeah move move in whatever way feels good yeah very true yeah so they also, I mean, like you were saying, Amy, chapter one really is about stress and how we can manage the stress we experience. But also in chapter two, it does talk about stressors, right? And helping to kind of look at stressors and what can we do about stressors? Right. And I think the next two chapters, kind of that first part of the book is really just about that whole aspect of like, okay, once you can figure out the stress cycle and mm -hmm. you can fix that for yourself. Now you got to look at your life and say, okay, what is causing me stress, right? And what can I, or can I not do about that? And how do I change? Mm -hmm. How do I affect that? So I love chapter two about the monitor. Right. I know, right? Yeah. So they just call it the monitor. I mean, there's all the technical terms in there, but basically the monitor knows, I kind of have this part marked to the monitor knows number one, what your goal is. Number two, how much effort you're investing in that goal. And number three, how much progress you're making, right? So we all kind of have this internal monitor that's monitoring those three things. What our goal is, how much effort we're investing and how much progress you're making on that goal. And that monitor really impacts our stress and what's going on inside of us because of some of the expectations we have for ourselves or we feel others have for us or, or things like that. And so when we're monitoring that gap kind of of where we are and where we think we should be, right. Cause that's really what that monitor does where we are and where we think we should be when we don't have clear expectations or good expectations or that monitor, they talk about like it gets angsty. Right. Mm -hmm. And like it frustrates us and causes stress and problems for us. Yeah. In reading this, and this is probably just because I'm a visual learner. Like I imagined like a little cartoon guy, like running around, like taking notes and then getting frustrated in her head when things are going off and not working. But I loved this concept because it's so simple and it feels like, as I was reading it, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. But it's also something that is, it's a simple concept that takes practice to kind of pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I thought that there was really great ideas. This chapter is just full of ideas of how to manage your monitor, basically, mm -hmm. right? how to help your monitor when you can control the stressor or when you can't control the stressor, they've got great ideas of how to manage that monitor, how to redefine some of your expectations, clarify your expectations or redefine them. So that monitor doesn't get so angsty. Mm -hmm. or cause problems for us. I work with a lot of clients. I'm sure we all do where, you know, they're like, I'm trying so hard and I'm not making the progress that I want to make. Right. And how do we manage that? You know, and are we digging into that? Like that was kind of a big takeaway for me. Like 
okay, well, do I know what progress looks like to them, right? As their therapist, when they're saying like, I'm not making the progress, do I know what they're actually looking for? Mm -hmm. And am I communicating what I'm looking for as progress, right? So that we're both clear on kind of where that monitor is and what those goals are and, and how we get there. Yeah. And I love, like, they even talk about like redefining winning and redefining failing that like our monitor may have some really rigid ideas of what it looks like to win and what it looks like to fail. And we need to fail in order to like better ourselves. But if our monitor is too rigid on that, then it's going to keep us in the stress cycle because we're always going to be scared of failing. And I loved how how they defined that and how they gave all of those options. Yeah. I mean like perfectionism. I like, I like the comment you just made the rigid monitor, right? So that's black and white thinking or the all or nothing thinking that we see or the perfectionism that we see sometimes in our clients. Right. Right. Having a rigid monitor, which is literally what they say about how to not manage your monitor. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think that that's some of that internal stressor, right? Like if our monitor is so tight and locked down expectations so much, we can develop so much shame in that stress cycle that we don't know how to get out of it internally. Mm -hmm. And again, I just love that there are lots of different options because like one of the things I think in the, the monitor chapter that stood out to me was just, you know, like we hear success stories of like, I never gave up and I kept going and I kept going and I kept going and I kept going. And then you have books that are like, why are you keep, why do you keep going? Like if there's too much resistance, you should move on or you should do something different. Right. And the world, I think gives us a lot of confusing, conflicting advice on that. And this chapter, again, it's going to give you lots of ideas, but the idea, like one of the ways that they summarize the chapter is that you have to figure this out for yourself. You have to know your monitor. You have to figure that out. Like you can't let other people dictate when you give up, when you don't give up, how you define success, how you don't like, you have to figure that out for yourself. Yeah. I have the quote underlined, choose the right time to give up, which might be now or might be never either way. The choice puts you back in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. I loved that whole section, like when to give up. Mm-hmm. I loved that they addressed the fact that you can give up, that that is absolutely an option on your table. And this is how you do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then chapter three gets into, if we're okay to move on, yep. chapter three gets into meaning, right? And basically, I mean, they talk about like how every Disney heroine has this I want song, right? That they get into. For example, I'll just read some that they have. Like Moana feels called by the ocean. Tiana is almost there, saving money to start her own restaurant. Belle wants adventure in the great wide somewhere. And the tradition goes all the way back to Snow White, singing, someday my prince will come. They say, you can chart the progress of women in America by the things Disney heroines sing about in in their I Want songs, which I thought was really funny. I love that. (laughs) But they say, like, like all heroines, we thrive when we're answering the call of something larger than ourselves. Right. When all the commuting and laundry and picking up dog poop and repeating no television until you finish your homework has a meaning larger than the grind of daily routine. And I think sometimes just the demands of daily routine become so encompassing that if we don't know, right, that that's part of the stress cycle that we get caught in or stuck in, 
then we don't know to like carve out this time for answering this higher calling. Mm -hmm. And this goes back, I think, to overly identifying with productivity or with supporting somebody else or giving to someone else, you know, knowing who you are on a deeper level than that. Like, what is your life about? You know, well, you know, what if it wasn't about your productivity? What if it wasn't about giving endlessly? Mm-hmm. Right. What happens when you can't do those things? Mm-hmm. Right. Because you from a time when you can't be productive. And how are you going to define yourself then? Yeah. And I love the way they defined meaning as the nourishing experience of feeling like we're connected to something larger than ourselves, Mm -hmm. which for me, this concept of meaning versus the concept of meaning that I grew up with, which was always a doing thing, right? Like you create meaning if you do something good for people or you do like kind of that aspect, but the idea that meaning is just about feeling connected to something outside of ourselves that's bigger than us was almost like just in my own life, like a, okay. Like, I don't have to prove this to someone. I don't have to prove that my life has meaning by, you know, curing cancer or like whatever I can just be. And as long as I'm doing what I need to, to feel connected, then that creates meaning in my life. Yeah, I feel like I, I love what you're saying and, and totally resonates. And, and I feel like I meet a lot of people and women in particular and have definitely been there and go there where we're waiting for someone else to like sign off on our meaning, right? Like whether it's a, a priest or a scientist or a male or an authority, like we, we struggle to really create and hold something that personal of a level of like, oh, I exist and I belong to something bigger. I'm a part of this world and that's enough, you know, without somebody else putting a stamp of approval on that. I also, you know, in this, they go back in this chapter, you know, they circle back to that human giver syndrome and they talk about how, you know, women are kind of this place and men are people they're the ones who are kind of on this journey. Right. And I mean, I love the work of Joseph Campbell, but you know, that when broke they, my heart, it broke my heart too. When they say like, you know, Joseph Campbell, like the father of the hero's journey framework, right. They say he summarized it succinctly when he was presented with the idea of a heroine's journey to consider, he said, women don't need to make the journey. He said in the whole mythological journey, the woman is there. All she has to do is realize she's the place people are trying to get to. And I'm sure he thought that that was positive towards women or that somehow that statement was not like dripping with patriarchy. I'm, I'm sure, right? I don't, I'm not going to have It was well-intended. I'm it sure it was and also a reflection of this culture and society he grew up in, right? To think that there is not journeys that women themselves need, right? If that's what kind of brings life meaning and starts to see this other side to ourselves where we're doing something bigger than us or connecting to something bigger than us. If that's helpful for men, it's probably helpful for women too. 
Yeah, I feel like, I mean, that did break my heart. And I feel like he was probably intending to like, women are are put up on a pedestal, right? Mm-hmm. But ignoring that when you put someone up on a pedestal, you're taking away their humanity. Right. It's just benevolent patriarchy instead of the more sexist patriarchy, right? And you're fueling a woman's internal belief that like, I have to be perfect. I have to be this perfect, you know, marble statue, this this goddess figure. I'm not allowed to just be a human being putting one foot in front of the other on the ups and downs of, of this journey. Mm-hmm. That's also interesting to me because the same time that Joseph Campbell was talking about the hero's journey, Tolkien was creating his world and not that there's a lot of women in the world of Tolkien and he could have done better on the feminist side, but all of the women that he does write about have a journey Mm -hmm. and that doesn't show up in the movies so much, but when you read the books and read the worlds of Tolkien, like all of the women have their own journeys. And one of the most well-known one is Eowyn who goes from being a place she goes from just being this like silent princess to destroying the witch king because she had to choose that journey and she had to stop listening to what men were telling her she was supposed to be in order to be the thing she needed to be. And Joseph Campbell used a lot of Tolkien's work in reflection, but that's not the journey that Tolkien gave his females. Random side comment. We can continue. With this. <laughs> oh no, it's good. <laughs> Paul Tolkien in whenever and however. (laughs) I was just going to say that sometimes when we do that, when we put women on pedestals, society can make them feel ashamed about not wanting what they're given, you know, not wanting what's right in front of them. If they want something more then we put a lot of shame on women for that. Right. Or if they want something different than what's given to them, we put a lot of shame on that for women. We don't put the same necessarily shame on that for men. Right we say, then you're awesome and you should go out and get it. Right. But if you're on a pedestal it's, and you want something different, we tell you that you're wrong. Yeah. But this is also the chapter where they talk a lot about, or more about human giver syndrome mm-hmm. and kind of what that means. And I like the way that the symptoms that they define, I'm looking at page 62, but believing you have a moral obligation, that is you owe it to your partner, your family, the world, or even to yourself to be pretty happy, calm, generous, and attract, attentive, not attractive, sorry, attentive to the needs of others. One symptom, believing that any failure to be pretty happy, calm, generous, and attentive makes you a failure as a person. Believing that your failure means you deserve punishment, even going so far as to beat yourself up and believing these are not symptoms, but normal and true ideas, right? That, that that's what you really are as a person that you have the moral obligation to give everything you have to someone else. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes too, you know, reading this book, maybe first pass, some of my clients would read those symptoms and be like, well, I don't believe that. Right. But it's when we're meeting week after week and we're slowly peeling back layers and they're not just like having to do all the things that have to get done. They start to realize that like deep down, those were beliefs they were given given Mm -hmm. by their mother, who was given it by her mother, right? Like those beliefs start when girls are so, so young, right? And they're just implanted there. And so sometimes you may get caught up in the busyness of life and not really understand some of the beliefs that are running the show. Mm -hmm. 
I, I always like find that I can question this when I ask women how they get angry, right? Like what does anger feel like to you? What do you allow yourself to do when you're expressing anger and how do you feel after that? Hmm. And because a lot of times I will find that they're either rabbiting or chandeliering, right? They're either like stuffing everything or blowing up over something like a booming left on the counter because it's, they, it's not safe to talk about the other things that they're angry about. And yeah, like that whole rule about being pretty and happy. Like I remember being told no one's pretty when they're angry. Like that was, that was a, was a saying that I heard from women in my, my culture. So like, I, I do think that that is just across the board, right? Like one of the things that I remember hearing about feminist, when people would talk about feminists negatively is they're angry women. Mm-hmm. How dare they? Right. <laughs> Again, it goes back to how dare you ask for more than you were given. Right. Right. How dare you ask to get off the pedal and do something. Mm -hmm. I love this quote about meaning and what it will do for us. Right. They talk about like, if you're um, flying on an airplane and it bounces into a pocket of turbulence, you know, you grab the arms of your seat kind of as if holding the arms of the seat somehow helps the overall bouncing of the plane. Right. Which of course it doesn't but it gives us that feeling that maybe, you know, we've got something to hold on to. They say when our lives bounce through pockets of turbulence, such as the uncertainty of joblessness or a confrontation with death or a sense that our work is not making a difference or that we don't belong, our brains grab hold of our something larger as if it can stop our lives or the world from tumbling out of the sky. And it works. It helps us tolerate the uncertainty, the mortality, the helplessness or loneliness until we find ourselves on the other side of the turbulence and back in smooth airspace. Yeah. And that's that connection, right? Between human giver syndrome and meaning, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the connection that they make is that they talk about the only way to heal human giver syndrome is connecting to that something larger, right? I like this part where they say, When you engage in something larger and thus make meaning in your life, you're actually healing human giver syndrome, both in yourself and in the people around you. Mm. And that connecting to that larger thing, when we hit those pockets of turbulence, when we connect with that, our something larger in life, our meaning, we can heal that human giver syndrome. Mm -hmm. Which I think is something that we all want desperately to heal that as a culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They talk about, right, we can't believe our way out of oppression, exile, or despair, which is kind of that toxic positivity, right? Like we, we can't, that actually won't work, right? But they say when we make meaning, we can sustain ourselves through worse things than we can imagine. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, that leads back to everything we know about enduring really difficult trials or really difficult things in our life, right, is connecting to that meaning. I mean man's search for meaning, right? Is that? Yeah, by Victor Frankl. That was exactly what I was going to reference. I was like, wait, that is the name of the book, right? Victor Frankl, right? Man's search for meaning. And just that whole process of when we 
for those of you that don't know, he survived World War II in a concentration camp and wrote about his experiences and just that people that found meaning were able to hold on and make it through that process. Horrible, horrific things. Yeah. That also like goes back to something that's mentioned earlier in the book, right? Like when we're going through these stressors, one of the things that they point out is like, you've survived. Mm-hmm. And as we're moving into like finding meaning and, and making some bigger pieces of that, like most of us have survived something we've survived a stressor. And we also know that a lot of times people's biggest passions are connected to their biggest wounds. And so we can make meaning out of our suffering. And that's such a powerful thing. And to me, like, those are the stories that like change me, right? Like that's Malala who was basically being forced to stop getting educated and being threatened to stop getting educated. And she was like, no, and she got shot for it and survived. And it just made her more passionate about educating women. Like those are stories that on small level, on big level are just impressive when we take, when we can move through our stress cycle and make meaning out of that. Mm -hmm. I love, you know, that you bring that up, like knowing that we actually did survive something traumatic, you know, in our work of trauma-informed clinicians. And, you know, I think we see that a lot of experience to, you know, where you get stuck in the stress cycle and you actually you don't feel like you've survived. You feel like you're, you know, either still reliving, still constantly triggered or just like permanently damaged by what you experienced. And, you know, really doing that, uh, that process of completing the stress cycle and healing and connecting and finding meaning, updating the nervous system so mm-hmm. that you can really acknowledge and recognize like, oh, I did survive and your, your brain knows it and your body knows it and you can actually move forward. I think that again, like that whole first part of the book, if that's the only message you get mm-hmm. <laughs> is to learn how to manage your stress cycle, that's with meaning, that's, that's all. I mean, like if that's all you got, that could be transformative in someone's life, Yeah, let alone <laughs> the next two parts of the book, (laughs) but just that first part alone. Yeah. Yeah. So that is part one of the book, right? We can kind of end the podcast on that note for that episode. And then the next episode, we'll start talking about part two and then we'll get into part three. The legal stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The prayer of the perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen. Amen.